when I was a kid, I used to love the newspaper on Sundays because of the comics, and I haven't watched the comic. I haven't looked at the comics in a long time. Maybe that means I'm getting old. I don't know. But there's one comic that I have. I, I save this on my computer because I love to show it to people, and I realize nobody can see that, so I'm going to have to read it to you. Um, but it's this is a church membership class. That's what it says on the door, and on the screen. To the left there, the teacher is showing how Christian movements have formed throughout history all the way from 1 AD with Jesus, right? You had unity in the church, and then from then on, the church is kind of split. There's been these splits throughout history, and you have all these denominations at the end, like all these different groups and splits, and, and he circles one, and he says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, it's kind of what we all say. We all think we're right about something, and and it's comical in that that's um, kind of how human behavior works, even though, really, we know it's not true. We know all of us, when we open the Bible, we're going to get something wrong. And then this uh, person sitting in the back says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. And so it's, it's comical in a, in a little bit of way, that, but we, uh, you know, it's just kind of how it seems to be that, that we think we've got it right. We think we've got it figured out. We think we are the ones with the corner on absolute truth. I was made aware of this book. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it's called I'm Right and You're an Idiot. Um, and it's a book where the people are really kind of looking at the state. It says they're the toxic state of public discourse. And it's this idea that we believe something and we believe it so much that it's, it's no longer I'm right and I think you're wrong and we can actually have a reasonable conversation and dialogue about it, but we, we change categories and we say, I'm right and you're an idiot. Or, or we go even further than that and we say, I'm right and you're evil. And so we, we tend to vilify the people that we don't agree with. And, and when you do that, you can't actually enter into conversation in a loving, respectful, mindful way with someone that you think is evil or from the devil. And it's like today, everything has to be a fight because we're always right. And the conversation seems to kind of drip with this vilification. But what Jesus says, he doesn't say, I'm right and you're an idiot, although he's probably the one person in the universe who could say that and get away with it. He says something like this, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the most unassuming people in the world. Blessed are the people who look like weaklings. Blessed are the meek, the ones who have nothing and the ones who want nothing. These are the ones who've got it made because they are going to be heirs of the world someday. This is the third of eight Beatitudes that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5. Eight statements where Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This is the third. And as we've seen so far, the, the ones we've looked at so far, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn this morning, blessed are those who make all three of these are really focused on a character of humility, and to understand this one correctly, we're actually, this morning, we're going to actually handle the verse backwards. We're going to start at the end, and we're going to start with trying to define what it means to inherit the earth, because I really don't believe we'll understand what meekness is until we understand what Jesus is talking about when he says that these people will inherit the earth. So what does it mean to inherit 
the earth. Well, first of all, the word inherit simply means to take possession of what God has promised, to receive, to gain, or to take possession of something that God has said he is going to give to his people. Literally, the word uh, inherit here means the law of the lot or the law of the portion. And when a Jew heard this word, they would have remembered the story of Israel coming into the promised land, the story that we read in the book of Joshua, when they come in and they conquer and they take possession of the land that has been given them. And after they've done some conquering, Joshua gathers all of Israel together and they cast lots. So the law of the lot, the law of the portion, they they cast lots to figure out who gets what, which tribe gets which portion within the land, the promised land that God has promised his people. So they cast these lots, and different tribes get different portions of the land. And so this is the imagery that would come up for a Jew hearing about inheriting the land. And this goes all the way back for these listeners. This would go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 where God appears to a man named Abram, and he makes promises to him. He says, leave your, leave your father and his household and your country and go to the land that I will show you. And when he gets to that land, in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. And this is a promise that gets repeated over and over and over again. To Abraham and his children, Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons, on down through until Joshua brings the people victorious into this promised land. Now, to understand inheritance, so that's kind of the background of the story, but, but, but we actually have to go even broader. We have to go even further back to, because to understand inheritance in, in regards to what it has to do with God's people, we must first understand the concept of God's kingdom because the two are inseparable. You can't separate the inheritance of God's people from God's kingdom. And we we can define God's kingdom very, very simply as God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And you might remember back to the first beatitude a couple weeks ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall what? For theirs is the... The kingdom of God, right? For theirs is the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So this idea of inheriting or this idea of of taking possession of a place actually precedes Abraham. So we do have to go back further. We actually have to go back to the creation where God says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, be fruitful. He says this to the first human beings, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill this place that I have given to you and subdue it and have dominion. What does that mean? Have a kingdom. Rule over this world, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I've given them to you. You are to rule over them underneath my rule, in my place, under my blessing. So God's original design for people, for humanity, is that we would represent his kingdom by ruling on the earth. The earth itself was intended to be humanity's inheritance. The whole world. Indeed, God still has big plans 
for the earth. You look in Numbers 14, 21, it says that all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk, the prophet, picks up on this in the second chapter of his book. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This idea that God's glory will cover and surround the entire earth. And both of these texts really speak to a future glory, a glory that can be fulfilled only when God's reign, his rule, covers the earth. When the earth is covered with his people who submit to his rule, when men and women once again rule the earth under God's supreme rule. This is a future picture, brothers and sisters, of what God has planned for this world, a future glory. So when we think about glory, when we think about our future, that the picture in the Bible is not a removal from this earth to a place up in the sky. The picture in the Bible is a reuniting of heaven and earth, a new heavens and a new earth that have been remade and restored and refashioned according to God's original intention. Where do we find that in the Bible? We find that at the very end. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven and earth reunited, God coming and, and bringing his reign, bringing his kingdom, bringing his heaven to the earth. This is a picture of the earth remade, renewed, redeemed under the reign of King Jesus, having coming down to be reunited with the earth. And this is the inheritance that Jesus is speaking of when he says, blessed and happy are the meek because they will inherit and take possession of this earth. With me. So, like Joshua of old, it's the meek who will enter into this new promised land, this eternal promised land, as conquerors claiming the territory that God has promised to them. So, that's a big picture of what Jesus means when he's saying the meek will inherit the earth. Well, who are these meek people? And I want to point out two things to help us understand what it means to be meek, what Jesus was talking about here. And first of all, we're going to go back to Psalm 37, which Dallas and and Wayne read to us in its entirety this morning. Because Jesus, when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, was actually quoting straight out of Psalm chapter 37. This psalm speaks of inheriting the land or inheriting the earth five times. So we're going to take special note and look at these five instances in Psalm 37 that speak of inheriting the land. The first is verse 9, where it says, The evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. A couple verses later, in verse 11 of Psalm 37, it says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The fourth time that this phrase occurs in Psalm 30, 
7 is in verse 29. The righteous, it says, shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And then finally in verse 34. Wait for the Lord. This one's a command to you. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. So what can we learn from these five instances of what Jesus Jesus means when he says to be meek? Are the ones who will inherit the earth. Here's what Jesus means, I think, by meek. If we took all that together, we could say this. That first of all, the meek are those who wait for the Lord. You see that there in verse 9. We see it again in verse 34. The meek are those who wait for the Lord. They have completely learned to trust in God's timing, in God's ways, in God's promises. They don't take things forcefully into their own hands. They don't force their own agenda or fight their way to the top of the pile. They don't have to fight or wage war to gain their inheritance. It's been promised to them by God, and they're confident he will give it to them in his time. They don't have to force his hand or make him move. They will gain their inheritance as they wait for the Lord. Secondly, the meek are those who are who are outwardly lowly. The the Hebrew word here actually means bent. It means bent over, like a humble person, a peasant, one who's bowed down and afflicted. So in ancient Israel, these were the poor of the land. Those, for whatever reason, had no possession, had no land, they had no income, they had no riches. And so, so the meek are those whose property or inheritance is not in this world because it's either been taken away from them or they're so free and open with it that they've given it away. Or they're willing to give it away if if God would ask them to. It's been given up for God. Third, the meek are those who are righteous and who keep God's ways. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever, verse 29. And then finally, as Jesus says, the meek... Number four, are blessed by God. This is exactly what Jesus said. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, so follow the thought through. Jesus is saying that those who will one day inherit, those who will one day rule the earth, are those who currently don't look like they possess anything. They're those who keep God's ways and completely trust in him, and wait on God for everything. And contrary to appearances, contrary to appearances, they may look like they have nothing in this world. The meek are actually those who have everything. They have everything they need, and they don't have to angle and fight for anything or even worry about it because they know God has promised it, and they trust his promises and his faithfulness to them. So the meek are like those that Psalm 37 describes. And then secondly, the meek are like Jesus. The meek are like Jesus. So Jesus had two disciples, James and John, and they had a mom. We don't know her name. They call her the wife of Zebedee. And she came to Jesus one time and made a request of him. And she said, Jesus, whenever you come into your kingdom, make it so that my sons, James and John, sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your kingdom. Put them in the places of power. And Jesus talks to her for a minute, then he turns to his disciples, most of whom are angry that somebody's mom is trying to wheedle her way in for these two guys. 
And he says this to them. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so. Sorry, I'll put this up there. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must actually be your slave. So for Jesus, it's not the arrogant. It's not the power-hungry who will rule the kingdom. It's not, it's not the gifted or charismatic leaders who will ultimately be in charge of the new earth. Rather, it's those who have devoted their lives to humbly serving others no matter what the personal cost. See, the ability to rule well is what God is working in those who are willing to serve like slaves. And this is not the kind of attitude that we find in the world. And in fact, I think it's difficult to find this kind of attitude towards leadership in the church. I think the hardest place to, to find this kind of attitude is in our own hearts. We don't want to be under or beneath or slaves to anything. We live in a world in which rulers lord it over us and, and, and exercise authority and, and we rarely question it or, or we push back on it to be free. We look for leaders in this world who are strong, who are courageous, who are fearless, who are dominant, who push forward and make things happen. We don't want weaklings to lead us, right? So where am I going with this? <laughs> Meek does not mean weak. Meek does not mean weak. To say that meekness is weakness would be to say that Jesus himself is weak. And we know that that's not true. What meekness is, is a chosen posture of humility, even, in a, even from a place of strength, a chosen posture of humility towards others that says, I will drop, I will dive, I will go to the bottom of the pile. I will be the last and not the first. I will be on the bottom and not on the top, even though I could dominate you. This is what dads have to learn when they play games with their kids. I could dominate you at tic-tac-toe, but I'm going to let you win. Or whatever, right? This is the kind of thing. It doesn't mean you're weak, but it means we have a posture that's a posture like Jesus's. Said that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 11, I am gentle. He says, when, he, when Jesus describes his heart to us, he uses the word meek. It's translated here, I believe, gentle. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. I myself am meek. The meek are like Jesus. Okay. So how do we inherit the earth? This isn't a Ponzi scheme. It's not a pyramid thing. I'm not trying to sell anything to you. How do you inherit the earth? How do you come to this place where you inherit the earth? Well, obviously, you have to be meek. Well, what does that mean? Meek, meekness requires faithfulness. Jesus says to those who are faithful over a little that he will put them in charge of much. Meekness requires faithfulness. To be a king or a queen in the kingdom of heaven 
requires that one has walked a road of faithfulness in all of the small things that God has placed in front of you, no matter how difficult they are. Because God will put things in front of you to teach you faithfulness that will often take you through the dark valley of the shadow of death so that he can teach you in the place where the lessons of humility are learned. Lessons of faithfulness teach us to be people who wait on God, to trust in his timing, to submit to his authority, to rule well. If we're going to rule well in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, if we're going to be meek people who inherit the earth, then we must first learn to submit ourselves to God in everything, even today, when it's difficult. Well, Jesus, I don't want to do that. Well, then you're not going to learn faithfulness. You're not going to learn what it means to be meek. Meekness is the first of these beatitudes, these eight statements of Jesus, these statements of blessing. Meekness is the first one that is dependent upon how other people treat us. The first two are really kind of our engagement with how we submit to God, how we posture ourselves toward God, how we posture ourselves even towards the world. But this one really has to do with how others treat us. So how well do you do when people treat you poorly? When they despise you, when they speak poorly of you, or when they gossip about you, how well do you do when someone's ungrateful, when they don't say thank you, when someone derides you or disrespects you? What is your response when someone treads on you or forces you to do something you don't want to do? Whoever's faithful in a little Jesus says, will be put in charge of much. Meekness requires faithfulness. Secondly, meekness is a sign of freedom. One of the ways that you can define meekness is this, by not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Being gentle, humble, considerate, unassuming. And when you hear that definition, isn't that the kind of person you want ruling over you? Isn't it the humble, the meek, the unassuming, the considerate, the one who's not out for their own glory? Isn't those, aren't those the ones who, who we want over us? The people who are truly freed from being impressed with themselves? The kind of person who doesn't need to prove anything because they already know that they're nothing. And every, all the sense of identity, all their sense of dignity, all their sense of worth is wrapped up in what God thinks, not in, in their own impression of themselves or anyone else's impression of themselves. The kind of, kind of person who doesn't rule because they need to get something out of it, who doesn't rule because they, because they need, to, need to possess everything, but they rule because they have already have everything. The kind of person who doesn't have to use their power to achieve or to impress anyone or to acquire anything, but who is freed up to use their power, to use their resources for the good of others. That is true freedom. A freedom that doesn't have to fight for its right to defend itself, but is free to trust completely in God. But when we strike back, when we retaliate, when we resist, when we seek revenge, we're not free. Because all those things mean is that we're tied up in having to defend our own egos. 
We're actually enslaved in that moment to our needs, to our discontentments. We're, We're enslaved to the requirements of our ego to defend itself, to compete, to need to be respected, to need to feel important. In that moment, we're not meek. We're actually quite weak. But according to Jesus, freedom looks like not needing to seek revenge when wounded. In fact, if somebody hits you on one side of the face, what do you do? You give them the other side. You present to them your vulnerability when you're attacked. Somebody forces you to walk a mile, Jesus says, hey, take two. Give up your hat, your coat, give up your favorite shoes when someone just wants your shirt. Someone asks you to wear one mask, maybe you throw two on. Put in extra, extra hours without pay or complaint. Sit with and hold the hand of someone who's sick and dying, even though no one's ever going to know about it, and they slept through the whole thing. Bite your tongue, even when you know you're right. Those are, the, those are actions that come out of a sense of freedom that is founded in God's promises and our trust in him. Meekness is a sign of freedom. And third, the meek will rule the world. The meek are those who will be able to rule in the next world because they didn't force themselves into a position of having to rule in this world. They didn't vie for power. They didn't fight for their rights. They didn't assert their own interests over the interests of others. And when they did rule, they ruled with deference to others. They ruled as servants in meekness, not in power. Their entire character is one of complete submission to and trust in God. And that in the new heavens and new earth, those are the people that the king will look at and say, you have been faithful in a little. Now go and rule much. So where does power really lie? Where does freedom really lie? What what does it mean to be meek and inherit the earth? Well, Jesus for us redefines power. Because the kingdom of God, if you read the Gospels, if you read the words of Jesus, if you look at his life, you cannot deny that the kingdom of God is diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of this world. Jesus makes this abundantly clear just here in these first verses of the Sermon on the Mount. But then to take Jesus' words and actually work them out in the practicalities of of our everyday life, that is up to us. And it's often, sometimes it's confusing. And it's especially confusing when the world is right at our fingertips with every swipe, with every click of the mouse, every time we turn on the TV, telling us something different and giving us a different picture of what power is. But it's clear that Jesus radically redefines power. And I'll tell you this, that political power is nothing compared to the power of Jesus' kingdom. Amen? And this should honestly call us up short when we, when we turn or when we're tempted to turn to political power for our salvation or when we seek the kingdom of God using the categories of worldly power. 
And the categories of worldly power in this world are often usually political. And they look like ideology. They look like laws. They look like candidates. They look like judicial appointments. They look like supermajorities. They look like flags, and they look like slogans. They look like agendas, and they look like platforms. But, but the Lord's statement was neither on, on one hand, love is love, or on the other hand, don't tread on me. His statement was this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The last year and a half has been crazy. And honestly, I spend a good chunk of every day giving mental energy and oftentimes conversation trying to understand what COVID and face masks and vaccines and Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and pride flags and Confederate flags, what any of those have to do with the gospel of God's kingdom. And we filter all of these things through a lens of power. We all do. We, we filter them through what kind of power are they going to have or what kind of power can they bring us. And even many in this room have been caught up in one or more of these things based on what we believe about power. But when we look to the king, when we look to King Jesus, and when we look to his kingdom as the only true power, the, the importance and the divisiveness of any one of these things will fade away in our minds and hearts, leaving us utterly devoted and free to pursue in lives of meekness God's kingdom alone. Jesus redefines power, and he's the one that holds it. And we get to trust in that. Jesus also redefines freedom. Where does true freedom come from? Let me back up a little bit to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says, the lines, verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And what the psalmist is saying here is that God has given his boundary. God has given him his inheritance. God has set the lines. The law of the lot has, has gone and he is pleased with it. It's beautiful. What is he talking about? Is he talking about a plot of land in the promised land, maybe overlooking the Dead Sea or the Mediterranean or something like that with a nice second vacation home? Is that what the psalmist is talking about? What is the inheritance he's speaking of? Well, we see it if we back up one verse to verse 5 where he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You see, the, the meek are the people who have nothing. They don't desire anything. They don't want for anything because they already have everything they need. They have God. He is their possession. They're content because they know that in him they have everything. As Paul said in Corinthians, everything is yours if you're in Christ. The world, life, Death, Jesus, everything is yours. And the meek will end up inheriting the earth because they didn't pursue the earth in the first place. Leo Tolstoy tells a short story called How Much Man, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's a story about this peasant in Russia who was talking with some people and he said, You know what? 
I wouldn't fear, and I especially wouldn't fear the devil if I just had enough land to support myself. So the devil hears that, takes him up on the offer, and in the story gives him land. He begins to work his land, and he begins to make money and grow weed, and then he realizes that he needs more land. And through the story, he continues to add to his land, and he moves away where he, to a place where he can get more and better land, and then he's not content with that. And then he finds out through, through another peasant, who actually ends up being the devil, that there's this group of people giving away free land. And so he goes, goes to find out what's going on. They say, okay, for, for a thousand rubles, for dirt cheap, you can have as much land as you can walk around in a day. Well, this can't be, this can't be real, right? So he, he figures it out. He figures he can walk 35 miles in a day. And so he sets out the land. He looks at what he wants, and he begins to walk first thing in the morning around this land. Well, he gets a ways in there. He thinks he's doing pretty good, and then he sees this piece of land that he hadn't planned on before. It's like, well, I better walk around that, too, to make sure that that's part of my inheritance, too. And he keeps adding things on. Well, as the sun's going down, he has in sight the finish line. But the sun is, is going down. It's going down fast. He's not going to make it. And so he begins to run. And he runs. And he runs. He runs his heart out. And he sees there at the end the devil's actually laughing at him. As he comes in, he comes to the end. He gets there just as the sun is going down over the horizon. And he drops dead. And his servant buries him says, how much land does a man need? Six feet from head to foot. This idea that if we pursue in this world, this world, if we pursue the things of this world as our inheritance, if we scrap and fight and try to get our way to the top to get all the power, all the money, all the prestige, all the possessions that we want, we will not only miss God, but we will lose all those things in the end. And Jesus says, if you pursue me, if you put my kingdom first and my righteousness, then all these things will be given to you. The earth will be yours. So where does power really lie? It lies in being truly free, and to be truly free is to be meek. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of those who will inherit the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled, I hope. I am humbled today by my own pursuit of things that would bring meaning or that I hope would give my life purpose or alleviate fear or make me feel free or powerful. And Jesus, I pray that today you would root down to the bottom of our hearts that rebelliousness, Lord, that, that, that sense of that we can be more powerful than you, that we can help you keep your promises better than you can, that we know what we need. God, humble us today and may we be meek. May we, may we let go of everything in order that we may have you. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, so that we can have our true portion, our true inheritance, you. God, work in our hearts today a love and a desire to know and love and obey you more than all things forever. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.